0: When he was in his late 30s, the Italian poet Dante Alighieri got himself into some serious political trouble and was exiled from his beloved Florence. Fortunately for us, he didn't wallow the way I do, eating gallons of Tillamook coffee almond fudge ice cream and binging nearly prestige TV. Instead, he wrote one of the world's greatest literary works, The Divine Comedy. In this story, Dante, the main character, must pass through the nine circles of hell, climb Mount Purgatory, and ascend to heaven to reach salvation. Along the way, he meets all sorts of characters, including the Roman poet Virgil, various politicians of his time, teachers from his school, and his one true love.
1: So lifelong practice of poetry, um, an interest in words and their effect— Um, and intense uh, personal hardship, I think, are all ingredients of this (laughs) poem. My name is Nasim Chida. I'm a lecturer at Columbia University.
0: The poem is divided into three main sections. The first is called Inferno, when Dante is in hell, Purgatorio, when Dante is climbing Mount Purgatory, and Paradiso, when Dante is in heaven. Part of what makes the poem so extraordinary and alive is how Dante subverts the expectations of his readers. Expectations about empathy, theology, the afterlife, even down to the language that it's written in. The poem even challenged Professor Cheetah's own personal expectations.
1: I wrote my dissertation on Dante's Inferno. Um, I first read the Inferno or even really heard about the Inferno as a freshman. So it wasn't part of my family's um, culture. And I took a year long course just on the Inferno. And I think the first thing that um, just mesmerized me was that it felt like a portal. It felt like a gate into uh, another world. And this world that I was seeing just was so at odds with what I expected. Um, You know, kind of coming into a medieval text, I I sort of expected something difficult to read. I expected something austere, doctrinal. um, And the world it was introducing me to, I I believed would be cruel, um, one-dimensional, not diverse. (laughs) You know, I had all these expectations and I found just the opposite of that. And over three years, I completed the Divine Comedy. And, um, by the end of it, I think I was, I was completely hooked. (laughs) I, uh, I, I learned not just about how to read and how to, a a whole new relationship with literature, but also I felt that I, I, I got that bug of reading things that are ancient and, uh, culturally alien to me. Um, because it helped me lo- locate the the common humanity um, between the reader and the author. If you only read people who have of the same background, the same century, the interested in the same things, it's it's you, you sometimes miss that, and you can become really um, sectarian in your reading. Um, but when you sort of discover literature through um, a Catholic Florentine medieval man, <laughs> you um, instead kind of you 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 discover really what what in you is is cultural and is of the present and what is, in fact um, universal. So when Dante makes me laugh or Dante makes me cry, uh, I feel like in that moment i I find my own humanity.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Nassim Chida to discuss Dante Alighieri's divine comedy. So let's learn about Dante the man and his times. What was the world that he was born into like and how did he become the person who could write something this deep and brilliant?
1: I think the main aspects of his time is the overall kind of long conflict between um, papacy and empire that had been going on uh, hundreds of years before he was born and that continued after he died. Um, so there's this sense of, of uh, chaos, really, uh, of, who, well, who's in charge?
0: Dante was born sometime around 1265. But hundreds of years earlier, beginning in the late Middle Ages, a political rivalry arose in northern Italy over who would rule the northern Italian city-states. The rivalry was between the authority of the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire. Before there was the Holy Roman Empire, it was called the Kingdom of the Franks, and it was ruled by Charlemagne. He fought his way across Western Europe, conquering lands and spreading Christianity. The empire was huge. It encompassed much of modern-day France— Belgium, Netherlands, parts of Germany, and parts of northern Italy. The Pope also ruled over land in northern Italy, called the Papal States. In the year 800, Charlemagne proposed a deal to Pope Leo III. Charlemagne wanted his power to be formally acknowledged by the Pope, and he wanted to be crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. In return, he offered Pope Leo III protection from invading tribes. Leo III agreed— And on Christmas Day, in the year 800, Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Although this crowning was just a formal recognition and didn't give Charlemagne any new powers, it did make ultimate political authority a little unclear. Was the Pope in charge, or was Charlemagne? As the years went on, the lack of clarity to that answer raised tensions from a simmer to a boil. Groups emerged on both sides of the issue. The Italian political party that supported the pope's political authority was known as the Guelphs. And the party that supported the empires was known as the Ghibellines. The two parties struggled for power for roughly 300 years.
1: It was an extremely uh, uh, divided time, especially in Florence. Dante was born in Florence, right in the middle of the struggle. He wasn't a noble, um, but he married well. And he seems to have had a lot of friends that came from the high nobility or, or and, and that were in, in, in politics.
0: Although many of Dante's friends were into politics, he had a different aspiration, to write.
1: He started writing poetry... At a very young age, um so the are poems that he wrote when he was eighteen and um it was in the it was the fashion fashionable thing to do to to write this poetry. We have le- um, rhymed letters between him and and some of his contemporaries again in his twenties and he continued actually to write poetry throughout his life, so it's not something that he abandoned it's something he constantly went back to so I think that He's a craftsman. He was interested in words and literature and forms and formats and um, different audiences. He also wrote um, a a book of literary theory, The Vulgar Eloquence, um, uh, which is really about literature and language.
0: Dante especially loved poetry. He cherished many of the poets of the classical world, including Ovid, Cicero, and Virgil. He particularly admired the Bolognese poet Guido Guinezelli. Early on, Dante began to establish a name for himself as a talented poet in a new style of love poetry called the Dolce Stil Novo.
1: And then he went into politics, and for a brief amount of time, he was one of the priors of Florence, so I would say a member of government um, with quite a lot of um, influence and power, but not more than others. Um, and politics was a very dangerous game, <laughs> Uh, It involved making a lot of enemies and getting embroiled in very violent conflict.
0: When Dante was in his early 20s, the Guelphs defeated the Ghibellines and gained control of Florence and the surrounding area. This meant that the pope once again held political power in the region. What was the church's role in
1: public life and private life? The church is a center of power, uh, and a form of organization it 's many, many things but it 's it 's really um, an organ of of power, a force to be reckoned with um, and religious life permeated life uh, so this was a time of uh, of monasticism um, of friars um, spread out in society. Some people argue that Dante himself may have been a kind of uh, lay Franciscan at some point. Um, uh, public festivals and public events were permeated with um, uh, Christian rituals. So so there was an institutional and social aspect to it. Uh, there was a cultural aspect to it. And then uh, when we talk about worldviews, there's something that is radically different about Dante's worldview. And that is in his Christian worldview, in his Catholic worldview, um, uh, God is really at the center of the universe. Uh, it, I mean, it, uh, everything goes flows from and goes back to God. So there's a kind of centered point, which really is radically different from our c- concept of the universe and just we're on this planet floating in space and we don't know what's out there. I mean, there's a sense of knowing what's out there and knowing humanity's role and place. Uh, both in space and in time. So there was a a creation and then there was, uh, you know, an an, an end time is expected, a judgment day is expected. In fact, on judgment day, which comes up multiple times in the Divine Comedy, uh, people were expected to regain their bodies, uh, physical bodies. Um, And Dante says, um, so so that mothers and fathers and those that, that were dear to them could see them and enjoy them, presumably hug them. So there's uh, the, our sense of our own lifetime, our sense of time, and our sense of our place in the universe is is was radically different f- uh, from the way it was today. Dante
0: had fervent faith in God, but considerably less faith in men. He was critical of the church clergy, especially the rampant nepotism and the buying and selling of religious favors, such as pardons from sin. Dante frequently spoke out against church corruption and abuse— a move that ultimately got him exiled from Florence in 1302.
1: And then after he was exiled, it's much more difficult to track his movements because what we have primarily is um, Boccaccio writing a generation later and who's known for being uh, quite inventive and having quite the imagination. So I don't know how reliable that is. Um, and uh, we have some letters, so we know that he worked professionally as a, as a secretary uh, to some rich families, uh, writing their letters and being in charge of their correspondence.
0: Following his exile, Dante most likely spent time in Rome and various parts of Tuscany. He began to distance himself from politics, and a few years later, he began work on the Divine Comedy. What did the writing of it look like? How long did it take?
1: It's really not... Entirely clear what his schedule of writing was. We know that people refer to this inferno, this account of going to hell, um, before the poem is completed. So there was some kind of circulation as he went along. Some scholars argue that it was written for a very specific audience. Um, I'm not. I'm not convinced by that. Um, just because of the uh, how 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 eclectic it, the work is it seems to have something for everyone rather than i'm writing for a specific group of people but people have argued that um other people say that it was written you know on the cuff like because there's some sort of when he talks about pol- political events sometimes it's it seems to be that he's writing in the moment or right after the moment um so there's this sense that maybe he was in exile and he was going from place to place, or maybe he found somewhere where there was a good library and then he wrote two or three cantos and then great. And then he was facing other hardships and then got somewhere else and wrote a few more. Um, so there's a lot of, there are a lot of questions about how it was really produced and there is no autographed, uh, manuscript. So he, uh, it, it was copied and all we have are copies. And in fact, the title that he gave it was not the Divine Comedy. The word divine was uh, was uh, added by those who copied it.
0: So was it originally just called the comedy?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it initially, um, the, the earliest manuscript kind of begins, uh, here begins the comedy of Dante Alighieri, Florentine by birth, but not in his ways. And what did he mean by comedy? It goes back to a medieval conception, um, of, uh, genre. There was a simple rule. If it ends well, it's a comedy. If it ends badly, it's tragedy. So given that it ends with a meeting, an encounter with God, um, it had to be a comedy. So by calling it a comedy, he's, he's kind of reminding the reader and announcing this will end well. I will get out of hell. I will get past purgatory. And this ends, um, in, uh, this has kind of a good and mystical ending.
0: The poem is divided into three main sections, which are structured in kanti, or songs. Each one is around 150 to 200 verses long. In total, there are 100 kanti in the Divine Comedy.
1: The first, uh, 34, in the Inferno. uh, The second second batch is Purgatorio, and the last batch is Paradiso, so uh, hell, purgatory, and, and heaven. Each text ends with the word stars. Um, so it, there's an effort, even in the kind of construction and the, almost like the DNA of the text, to preserve it entirely. So there are references back and forth throughout the text that 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 suggest that he it was it is divided in three parts, but it was really important to kind of see it as one epic poem
0: to the degree possible. Could you take us through the broad arc of the story?
1: I think the first thing to point out is that you have an extremely overdetermined plot. <laughs> um, uh, uh, he wakes up uh, or he uh, he finds himself in a dark wood. Um, he meets the ghost of Virgil, who says that he has been sent um, um, uh, through the will of heaven via Beatrice to help him go through all the circles of hell.
0: Throughout the poem, Dante follows several guides at different times, Virgil, Beatrice, and Saint Bernard. His first guide is Virgil, who takes him to the gates of hell. In the gates is inscribed, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Virgil explains to Dante that he will have to pass through the nine circles of hell. These nine circles are concentric, each one inside the previous, and they get increasingly more treacherous the closer to the center they are. At the very center, Satan is held in bondage. Each circle of hell contains people who have sinned to various degrees and are eternally suffering as a result. So, I mean, what else does the Inferno have? Is it mostly it going through each circle and seeing who's there uh, until you arrive at Satan?
1: So, first of all, the, the, the first circle um, is limbo. Where there, are in fact, no punishments. So people seem to be dressed. They have a, a, a kind of bonfire going. Um, Plato and Aristotle and, and Aeneas and, and they, they're all just hanging out uh, in limbo and in a place that does not seem, uh, terrible to be in beyond the fact that they're cut off from God. Uh, you know, he's the, he, he spends some time there with the other poets and philosophers thinkers and scientists military men and and legends and and women um, so that's a, that's kind of a, a, the the first place where they linger, which is where Virgil is from um so it it plays immediately with that sense of guilt and uh condemnation. You just wonder how fair is it that Virgil is stuck in hell. Um, you get to the lustful and you think, uh, should I also be fainting of pity, uh, for, of pity for someone who's in hell? And what does that make me? What kind of a reader am I <laughs> a reading about a woman who read so badly, I guess, or so wrongly that she ended up in hell? Um, among the sodomites, he meets his teacher. Um, and, uh, he, who, whom he meets and, and shows extreme affection to, um, and uh is mentions how his teacher uh, this had a kind paternal image who um, from time to time showed him how man makes himself eternal um and the 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 teacher says, "Well, remember me and my book so this this book is now recorded in the divine comedy also eternalized with with the man so uh, these are examples of kind of how It really pushes that frame and plays with the expectation of just seeing, ah, this is a bad, this is sodomite, let him get a punishment and then I can move on. I think Dante just didn't think that that would be that interesting or rewarding for the reader to do.
0: After Dante and Virgil pass through hell, they have to climb Mount Purgatory. Similar to hell, Mount Purgatory also has levels. Each level is higher up on the mountain than the previous. The higher up they are, the closer they are to heaven and God. There are seven levels in total, each one loosely tied to the seven deadly sins. Like in hell, these levels are also full of people who sin to various degrees. In hell, the sinners are punished and tortured. But in purgatory, as you ascend, you atone for these past sins.
1: So at the bottom, you have the people who um, uh, were actually excommunicated. (laughs) So, um, uh, Dante is very clearly saying, you know, the church cannot buy you from heaven. Like, they don't have that power. At best, you'll end up here. So it was just a waiting game. Really, you're saved. Um, so, uh, and then you, you kind of progress from there. Hell has an Aristotelian framework. It's not based on seven deadly sins exactly. Um, and it, very clearly God has read Aristotle in Dante. I mean, there's a scene in Inferno 11 where Virgil, he's asking like, but what about those people? Why are they here and why are those people there? And Virgil says, remember your ethics. <laughs> So, uh, hell has an Aristotelian kind of framework, but, um, purgatory has a more, um, traditional Christian framework where there are various vices and each one is sort of, um, purged in a different way. So the envious, for instance, have their, their eyelids sewn shut um so it's it it's both painful and it's symbolic right they can't see the light of god they they're barred from seeing that light uh even though they they in, in purgatory and they should be able to see it um the prideful um carry giant stones on their back which i always think of as the ego that they that they're carrying and that kind of makes them bend down um in order to lift the load And the lovers, uh, who are just the least bad, (laughs) just right by, uh, just before you get to um, the Garden of Eden. um, Just uh, uh, an interesting part here. Among the lovers, you have uh, heterosexual and homosexual uh, uh, lovers. They're both uh, clearly saved uh, together.
0: Dante and Virgil make their way to the top of Mount Purgatory and reach the highest level, the Garden of Eden.
1: And then from there, he takes off into the heavens, into space, and then kind of the heavens are divided uh, by planets. So there's the moon and then, you know, the planets, the sun, and eventually reaches um, the, 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 um, the rose where he's just gaze- gazing into, um, into God's mind.
0: What happens in, in Paradiso, in heaven?
1: So in Paradiso, he, um, he stops in various spheres. Um, and so he, uh, he meets this, this woman, Picarda, that he knew in his childhood, who kind of sort of sets the scene for what it means to be blessed. Um, she's kind of in the suburb of heaven, as it were. She's sort of far away from the center. She's the first circle, the closest to the earth. And, and you slowly get closer and closer to God. Um, but, uh, so so you see various souls you know sort of in the heaven of the sun you see all these intellectuals these theologians um uh in in uh, at one point he meets the the eagle of divine justice so all the souls of the just uh, collect in in the shape of an eagle um and he gets to ask a question and this is one of my favorite passages because the question that he asks is um If a man is born on the banks of the Indus and uh, has never heard of Christ, but is a good person, where is the justice that condemns him? Paradiso is is a kind of way for Dante himself to wrestle with a lot of theological questions. Um, He uh, also gets tested uh, by, uh, um, uh, by saints on his faith. Um, and there's a very scholastic kind of medieval, uh, education sort of scene, um, uh, where he's asked with how many teeth does love bite you? You know, some kind of things like that. Um, and then, uh, Beatrice actually leaves him in the final cantos and she's replaced with Saint Bernard. She, she sort of takes her place in the rose staring at God. Um, and he kind of finishes the journey with the, with Saint Bernard. And the last time he sees her, she looks at him and then she looks up um, at God. Um, and he, he sort of, it's, it's a journey towards freedom. You know, it's presented that way. He, he thanks her at the, at the end. He thanks her using the two instead of the more polite sort of uh, lay form. Like it's, a, it's an intimate moment. Um, and he, he, he acknowledges that she has brought him from uh, bondage into freedom.
0: How does the text end?
1: Every text ends with the word stars. And so the final verse of Paradise is um, uh, that he sees the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Um, So he sees uh, the mind of God. He's able to look into the mind of God and and in a flash, he sees um, a human form. He sees uh, abstract sort of um, squarings of the circle, as it were. You know, he sees the, the impossible, the ineffable, the kind of unspeakable uh and and that's how it ends he he just sees the love and uh presumably the the whole universe um so that's 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 the plot and so it's very it's it's very hard to inject suspense right so if you say from the beginning we have to go through hell go all the way to Lucifer and then find our way on it, it it very easily becomes repetitive. And so he, uh, The Hundred Cantos are, he takes that as a format and then fights against it and brings in all kinds of um, adventures. It's hard to summarize all of them, but I would say the plot involves feeling extremely ambivalent about what is happening most of the time.
0: Throughout the Divine Comedy, Dante subverts the expectations of the reader.
1: So uh, you expect to to just maybe have pity or suddenly uh, uh, feel a sense of condemnation for those people in hell. But in fact, uh, encounter after encounter, not all of them, but many of them, including the last big one at the the bottom of hell, you're left with uh, a totally different feeling. Um, So he kind of, it's over and over, he... Uh, it brings up situations and stories that test our own sense of um, morality and reveal um, who we are by how we react to them.
0: What do you think motivated him to do something this ambitious?
1: I think that what motivated him personally was um, a desire to be immortal, (laughs) like a desire to propel himself and preserve himself um, for posterity. When he gets to paradise, he um, when his when the character Dante gets to paradise and he meets an ancestor um, to whom he says, uh, "If I am a timid friend of the truth, I fear that um, those who will see our times as ancient." will forget about me, that I, I won't live long in, in their mind. So there's, he, 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 he gives us a clear sign that he's interested in speaking directly to posterity and believes that in order to do that, he has to, um, take a certain position vis-a-vis the truth, I would say. Um, so there's, I, I think that that was the deeply motivating thing. He, it begins in the middle of, of the journey of his life. Um, so we can, that's kind of usually the time when we start seeing, the end and uh, wondering what, what is going to be left. Um, and he's also exiled and at this extremely difficult time of his life. And so it's kind of uh, uh, an instinct to preserve yourself in the face of adversity, I believe, is, is the primary factor.
0: Not only did Dante make himself immortal, but he also preserved the characters in the poem, specifically Beatrice, who he knew in real life. When Dante was nine years old, he met a young girl named Beatrice Portinati he claimed that he fell in love at first sight. But despite his passion, Dante's family arranged for him to marry someone else from a more powerful family. Even though Dante never really got to know Beatrice, or more likely because he never really got to know Beatrice, his love for her endured throughout his life. In addition to the Divine Comedy, Dante also featured Beatrice in his 1294 work La Vita Nova, a short text about medieval courtly love.
1: So uh, Beatrice has has died by the time he's writing, but uh, the Vita Nova is, is about her death, his love for her and her death and what happens afterwards. And um, I think that it was uh, a way to bring her back and preserve her as well, um, because he did write about her and present her in a way that you can't really find in contemporary fiction, um, where the, the lady never speaks in, uh, the texts of his time, and here she not only speaks, she saves the hero. Uh, she explains why there are dark spots on the moon, and she literally leads the way to to God. So there's uh, there's I think his grief and his relationship to Beatrice as a person and and as as an idea, um, probably is also part of the reason why he wrote something like this.
0: At the time, serious Italian texts were written in Latin but only the educated elite could actually read Latin. Dante decided to write his epic in Italian so more people could read it. Italian was considered a low and vulgar language, and writing a poem with a divine subject matter in Italian was very controversial.
1: He was very conscious of the uh, value of writing in, of not writing in Latin, for instance, um, and the way that that might both affect all readers and reach more readers uh, than writing in Latin. And so
0: it's composed of Canti, of these cantos. Did he intend for these to be read out loud? Like, are there, is there an oral quality
1: to them? There is an oral quality to them. Um, for instance, many passages uh, imitate the sound of the thing that they're describing, so um, you can hear the sinners scratch themselves uh, because of the use of certain words with R's and and T's um, uh, and Z's. So, so it, it it's it was designed to be read out loud or even sung out loud. Um, so there is that aspect to it, but it's a, it's, it's, it would be wrong to think that that's what it was designed to do because he very clearly wanted to be glossed or expected to be glossed because there are references in it, even if you're the most erudite reader of the time and you immediately know who all the people are, um, he refers to things that are internal to the text that just haven't come up yet. I believe it, it was meant to reach a very wide audience so that there, there would be people who would kind of enjoy the 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 invectives and enjoy the political satire um, I wouldn't call it satire but the, the 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 political invectives but also the sense of adventure and the beauty um and there would be other people who would just sit and pore over it and copy it and count syllables and uh fill in the blanks so it's a very interactive Text and it interacts at many different levels with different sorts of people.
0: What What is he saying about the nature of God? What is God for
1: Dante? For Dante, God is um, what is essential, and everything else is circumstantial. So it's that which exists without needing anything else to exist prior or before. Um, so it's God is everything, and God is the beginning. Um, But he also has a typical uh, sort of uh, uh, three-part view of of God being uh, um, uh, infinite power in the Father, infinite wisdom in the Son, infinite love in the Holy Spirit. So it's a kind of a God with three components.
0: So I think the final question about the text itself would be, Maybe your your thoughts about how to think about um, Beatrice, Beatrice. You know what what's useful to know about about this person who seems to be at the center of Dante's life.
1: Well, we know that she existed. Um, we know that she got married. We know that she died in childbirth in her twenties, um, and we know that she didn't have enough importance to be recorded by others or to be a, a player uh, in the life of Florence. She 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 exists through Dante's texts, who kind of Kept her alive. I think proto-feminist. I mean, in some ways, suddenly uh, his contemporaries were absolutely appalled by uh, his use of her in the text. They were appalled that this Florentine woman from you know was explaining God and science and uh, uh, theology to to Dante. They were appalled that she is up there with Mary and Saint Lucy. That she kind of addresses Virgil. That she gets to do all these incredible things. So. You know, it's 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 hard to really give the label, but I think that he was doing something for her that was on. It's, he was representing women in a way that was totally different from his contemporaries. Um, what may, may or may not have happened between them is uh, is lost, unfortunately, because he tells us so much about her. I mean, in the Vita Nova, he describes first meeting her and then meeting her a second time, and then how she died and and uh, how he dreamt of her. So he gives us all of this, but I mean, it's all fiction. Uh, it, it's not, I mean, there's no outside re- the basis for that. There's no other source that confirms any of it. So, and he's such a, he's such a, a storyteller and an inventor that it's, um, it's hard to really say if there was what, what element of that was real. And she's a, the agent of his salvation. I think that's really the key. And that is shocking even now, You know, to even, even now, I mean, if, if you, if you met someone who said, Oh, I have a new girlfriend. She's going to be the agent of my salvation. It's kind of seems a little bit intense. You know, it seems like that's a bit much to put on one person. So she's, so I think that it's more than, I think it's more rewarding, um, to think about his relationship with her and her role in the text, not as one that represents a kind of illicit or not relationship between individuals. Um, but, uh, something she inspired something in him.
0: So how did his contemporaries react to this text?
1: The immediate reaction was uh mixed. Um there's there's a the part where he puts all the popes in hell so that that couldn't have gone down so well in certain circles. Um uh but and and there's also a story about how Boccaccio would recite certain wanted to recite the Divine Comedy. So the next generation in Florence, but was sort of booed out of town because there were too many descendants of the families that he puts in hell. So it's very political, and it was you know if you were responding at the time, it was mentioning a lot of people that people knew in recent history, and people then um, uh, after the Divine Comedy sort of rushed in and and spilt a lot of ink trying to defend people that he had put in hell. So there's a lot of kind of defensiveness at the time uh, because of how uh, vividly his, uh, because of its all its historicity um, the book that was later burnt and uh, got a lot got a lot of um um sort of uh, was censored by the church is is not the Divine Comedy, it's the Monarchia, another political book that he wrote. And um, my advisor was, uh, I think is the one who speculated one time that uh, in part it's because he includes a lot of classical literature in his text. So Virgil is there as the guide, there's Centaurs, there's a Cerberus, uh, there, I mean, there's just all kind of, you know, uh, um, elements of classical literature which may have convinced his contemporaries, ah, well, you know, it's a fair Fairy tale—it's not a book of theology, so we don't—we don't need to burn him at the stake with this. You know, this is just a fun little thing. So it had—it has an inbuilt defense mechanism in a way, um, and it lasted for a long time in, in terms of its its authority over over readers. It was much later in the Enlightenment; it was uh, cast aside, together uh, cast away with a lot of medieval. Uh, texts, um, as part of a rewriting and reconceptualizing of the Middle Ages as a dark time, um, of cruelty and, and dogmatism and, and, um, simplicity. And you can just pick up any canto and that proves the opposite. So it was, I think that's a big part of why it was cast aside. But then he was rediscovered, uh, in the Romantic period. Um, William Blake kind of did all those, um, illustrations. But throughout that time, I would say he's somebody that really profoundly impacted visual artists, um, really from, you know, Michelangelo to Dali have all illustrated the Divine Comedy. And I think that that is a big part of his legacy as to uh, is is as a creator of a virtual reality. And I think in part, that is why visual artists are so interested in him because he is a playwright and uh, a, a VFX master and uh, a, 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 a director. Um But I think that he, the fact that his, poem also has all this fun in it. Like it has, you know, kind of uh, these these moments of suspense and these magical creatures and it's all, it gets very scary at uh, certain points. That sense of, well, I have to entertain the reader and, and I have to take something that can be used and reused and, and reformulated in different ways. Uh, so you could find basically references to Dante's Inferno in South Park, you know, and uh, it, it's just, it's very easy to lift something. And and use it as a framework to express something else. Um Mount Purgatory, the concept of purgatory also we owe uh in large part to him. Not that purgatory didn't exist as a concept, but it was absolutely uh not detailed. There was no detail, nobody bothered to describe purgatory. It just didn't feel interesting. Whereas he kind of really gave it shape and form. Um that and 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 it to to the extent that it then started to be represented and people just assumed, well, this is what the church thinks, but actually this is what Dante thinks um, about what purgatory might have looked like. So he, he has theological ramifications, artistic. Um, so Dante kind of for the lay Uh, readership, like Dante is Christianity, uh, which is strange because he's absolutely uh, I mean, some of the things he's says and claims are theologically absurd, uh, for instance, God having read Aristotle or people are in hell before they've even died, um, you know, all kinds of things are just not like the, the, the popes, popes who are not dead are already expected, which makes no sense, right? Because if, um, if you can be saved at the last minute, then you can't be expected in hell. So he's, he's not dogmatic at all. And yet, for many people, the Divine Comedy is their first and greatest encounter with Christianity
0: yeah i think uh what you mentioned the way that a lot of popular christian understandings of heaven purgatory and hell are dante's invention and you know that's wild right i mean poets are the unacknowledged theologians of of the world um that's amazing and i you know i wonder if church leaders have been at pains to say no that's that's just dante that's not what we actually believe
1: well, it's 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 a it's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the other hand, you can read Dante and walk away from that thinking, "Oh, well, I better be a good Christian," you know. And th- there's nothing in it that he he's very he doesn't admit to breaking these theological rules. Quite the contrary, he he presents it to himself as he pres- he makes a truth claim. I mean, there's nowhere in the comedy where he says, "I'm going to make this up." He says the opposite. I woke up in a dark wood and I saw this. Um, and he 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 perpetually. Underlines, You know, reader, I swear by the notes of this, my comedy, I saw, you know, this thing. So he's he's kind of claiming, making a truth claim about the work.
0: Through his poetry, Dante achieved his dream of immortality. The Divine Comedy is a work of surpassing beauty and faith and helped forge our conception of heaven, hell, and purgatory. It continues to be read and beloved by millions. But in addition to immortality, there was another more immediate reason he may have written the poem.
1: Some people have argued that he did it in order to find his way back into Florence. You know, he he says one day I will go back a poet and he never did. So maybe there was a sense of hope that by writing something so incredible or by writing specific things about specific people, he might gain favor and find his way back.
0: Dante died at the age of 56 and was buried in a tomb in Ravenna, Italy. Florence eventually regretted exiling Dante and made several requests for his remains. They were all refused. In 1829, Florence even built a tomb for Dante, but it has remained empty ever since. In 2008, roughly 700 years after his death, Florence finally officially rescinded his sentence of exile. Even though Dante never made it back to Florence, in some ways, his wish was answered. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.